Anybody know what's going to happen in 11 days' time? No. 11 days' time is April Fool's Day. Well done, Reggie. Now, what are you doing for April Fool's Day? Well, back in 1957, a well-respected, well-respected BBC news program called Panorama broadcast a story about a great spaghetti harvest in Switzerland. And they said they got hundreds of calls from viewers asking how they too can grow a spaghetti tree. Well, today we're going to be looking at a harvest that's not an April Fool's. It's a harvest that is actually so real and so significant that it's worth going all out for. It's a harvest that is so great that it's worth rejoicing in greatly. It's a harvest that has implications for both now and eternity. Before we look at it, though, let me just remind us where we're up to in John's Gospel. Uh, in the first part of chapter 1, uh, we saw that the Word, the Light, the Son, was God with God. He became flesh, came into this world as the, the perfect revelation of God to us. And then in the second half of chapter 1, we saw John the Baptist preparing the way for his coming. And we saw how some of John's disciples actually left him to join Jesus. Chapter 2, we saw the visit of Jesus and his disciples to a wedding at Cana of Galilee, and we saw him turning water into wine, which is the first sign that he did at that place. And then we saw him clearing the temple, uh, and the dispute he had with the Jews after that. And we saw his claim to be the true temple, the place where we really meet God. And then in chapter 3, we saw his conversation with Nicodemus, how he taught that we need to be born again if we are to enter the kingdom of God. But we can't do that, it is only the Holy Spirit who gives us new birth. We saw that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then in the second half of chapter 3, we saw how Jesus was getting more popular than John the Baptist, but John was okay with that. Because his job was to prepare the way, Jesus must become greater, and he must be less. Yet at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is the one who actually leaves Judea and heads north to Galilee. And on the way, as we saw last week, he passes through Samaria. His disciples go into a village to buy food and leave him at the well. Tired and thirsty, but with nothing to draw water with. And then you recall a woman comes to draw water and Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's surprised because the Jews despised the Samaritans. They were not purebred children of Israel. They were mixed. They worshipped Yahweh, but they worshipped him at the wrong place. And they had the law, but only the law. Only the first five books of the Old Testament rather than the whole thing. And some Jews considered Samaritan women to be constantly unclean. Furthermore, Jesus, a man, was talking to a woman that Loose, shunned woman as that. And yet in this conversation, Jesus offered her living water. He showed how he understood and knew her sinful background. Taught her about true worship. Disclosed to her that he was indeed the Messiah. When the disciples come back, they are surprised to see what he's doing. But we pick up the story in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. See, it's not done in that culture. There they were at the well, shock horror, just the two of them. And Jesus was talking to them. 
How can that be okay? But one of the rabbis at the time set about talking with women. One does not speak with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with other women because of people's gossip. Well, Jesus didn't seem particularly worried about that. Of course, not everyone would have agreed with that particular rabbi, and we do find Jesus speaking to women on other occasions when no one is scandalized, so maybe it's because she's a Samaritan woman, but Jesus doesn't seem particularly worried about that either. And the disciples, well, they don't dare to question him. Verse 27 continues, They marvel that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? But you can bet that's what they were thinking. Their attitude to the woman was very different from that of Jesus. In fact, when they come, she leaves in a hurry because of her. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus engages with her, but the disciples' attitudes hurt her, and she, and she leaves. Verse 28, So, or therefore, the woman left the water jar and went away into the town. Be careful, friends, not to come across as judgmental when engaging with unsaved people. People need to hear the gospel and repent and be saved. They need to lovingly engage them, not show a superior attitude towards them. Jesus is without sin, and yet he is able to deal patiently with this woman. But the disciples come, and they've got an attitude towards her. And she leaves. But God is kind. She's not put off her faith in Jesus by them. Her encounter with Jesus was far too significant for that. And so when she goes back to her village, she goes around to all the people and says in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Qualifications of being the Christ was a lot more than telling her what she's done before. But that was enough to make her impressed. And so impressed is she that she manages to convince many of the villagers to come and meet Jesus for themselves. And so verse 30, they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Ah, they are coming to Jesus. And John, there's a pause on that. And he goes back. So when the woman has just left him. And the disciples are talking to Jesus. And the disciples are urging him, verse 31, saying, Rabbi, eat. They've gone to buy food. Now they've come back and Jesus is not going to eat the tapa they got for him. So they kept asking him, Eat, la, Rabbi, eat. And what does he say? Verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So they say to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? If so, who? Was it that woman that he was talking to? Or maybe someone else? Who's, who's feeding him? And here's the answer in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. See, what motivates Jesus? What satisfies him? What he longs for, what he hungers for, is to do God's will and to complete his work. 
That is what drove Jesus to talk to this woman. That is what drove him to offer her living water. That is what ultimately drove him to the cross. And friends, if we are to follow Jesus, then doing God's will is to be our passion as well. For Jesus, God's will was that he should reveal him to the people. That he should show who he is and what he's like. And then die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Now, God's will is that the gospel goes out into all the world. That people see the Lord Jesus as he is proclaimed. That people believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and by believing have life in His name so that God is glorified as His character is seen and believed in the Gospel. And God's will is that we should become more and more like Christ in our character. It is God's will that we should be changed into His likeness. Be like Him. Is that what motivates you? Is that what drives you? Gets you out of bed in the morning? Is that what you're really passionate about? Is that what you talk to people about? Is that what you work for? Is that what you live for? Is that what you just can't do without? My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of Him who sent me. May it be ours as well. Well, Jesus encourages his disciples to think this way. To think in terms of God's will, God's harvest, God's plans. He says in verse 35, Do you not say there are yet four months and after that comes the harvest? Maybe that's where they were up to agriculturally. The harvest was coming, but some time away. Or maybe that's just a common saying that, 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 that's used. But either way, that's certainly where they were up to in salvation history. This was early in Jesus' ministry. But on the grand scheme of things, they weren't too far from the harvest. Not there yet. The real harvest would come when, when Jesus was glorified. When he would die and rise again and pour out his spirit. But why wait? Verse 35. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest. There is actually a harvest that is ready now. Already, verse 36, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. The saying there is obviously a saying that goes around, it was going around those days, right? Buri Bahasa, those who studied Malay. One sows and another reaps. Just a pity say. Which means, if you're the reaper, then you get the harvest that you didn't put the initial work in for. Someone else did the groundwork, you reap the benefits. And that's what's happening with Jesus' disciples. Someone else did the groundwork, and now Jesus and his disciples are going to get the harvest. They are the reapers. And they're already at work. Verse 36 again, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus and his disciples are gathering fruit from eternal life, even though the official harvest hasn't started yet. But if Jesus and his disciples are the reapers, who is the sower? Well, when I first looked at this, I thought it must be John the Baptist. 
he and his disciples have been preparing the ground for Jesus. And now Jesus and his disciples are going to reap the harvest for eternal life. And you can see that people have been going from John to Jesus. John rejoiced at the coming of Jesus. Both John and Jesus rejoice in the will of God being fulfilled. And that makes lots of sense of the verses by themselves. And it makes sense of the connection with the passages we've looked at in the previous weeks. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? Why does Jesus talk about it here? If he talked about it at the beginning of the chapter, when the Pharisees realized that he was getting more disciples than John, yeah, you can understand, that was in Judea. But this is Samaria. As far as we know, John's never been to Samaria. Hasn't done any groundwork here. Hasn't sown anything. So, why is he mentioned in this way here? If you're one of the disciples, you'd be a little bit confused. Who is Jesus talking about? If not John, then who? You look at the commentaries, and some people say Old Testament prophets, some people say it's God the Father. I'll tell you what I think, but be a little bit careful because I'm going out on a limb here. Can't find any commentators who agree with me. Right? But I think it's from the passage. So you look at the passage, you see for yourself. The passage seems to give us a context for this. Remember what's happening? Verse 30 The Samaritans are coming to meet him. And then you've got these words of Jesus, sandwiched between that and. Verse 39 onwards, the Samaritans are believing in him. Who sent them? It's the woman at the well, wasn't it? In fact, verse 39 continues, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two days. And many more believed because of his word. You see the sowing and the reaping here? Samaritan woman sowed. She went back and told all the people in the town about Jesus. They begged him to stay with them. And over two days he spoke with the word of God, and many believed, and they received the gift of eternal life. And so Jesus and his team reaped a harvest from among them. It's a bit of a telling off to the disciples as well, isn't it? sense. Many believe because of his word. And verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We have heard the woman's testimony, then they have come to Jesus and heard him speaking. And now they know that he's the saviour of the world. The Messiah, yes, has come. And he's come not just for the Jews, but for them as well. He's the saviour of the world. So the Samaritan woman sowed, and Jesus reaped. Friends, never underestimate the power of your personal testimony in sowing the seed of the gospel. Never underestimate how God can use your enthusiasm. Be excited about Jesus. Be so excited that you, you talk to him, about Him to your friends and your acquaintances and people who despise you and think that they're better than you are. Just, just tell them about Jesus. Even if you don't know everything, even if you can't give a theological treatise, how much would the Samaritan woman know after one conversation with Jesus, huh? Yet she's the one who sowed the seed among the Samaritans, telling them of Jesus and calling them to come and meet him. 
You can do that, can't you? You can invite them to come and encounter your Saviour. You can give people a copy of John's Gospel or Matthew or Mark or Luke, for that matter, and say, hey, you've got to meet this guy. Now, of course, we want to see you all trained in evangelism far further. But every one of us can do at least that. Get a few copies. See, you've got these little Gospels. This one's Mark. You get Matthew, Luke, John. There's a whole stack of them on the welcome desk. Go and take some on your way out. They run out and go to Jessica in the bookshop. 30 cents each. Share your enthusiasm about Jesus. Tell people, Jesus is so great. You've just got to meet him. Look, meet him. Just read this. Some will reject you. Some will take a copy out of politeness. But some will indeed spend time with Jesus and hear him for themselves as they read his word. Come back to you one day and say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. But we have heard for ourselves and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Well, Jesus stayed in Samaria for two days. And then he left to go. Verse 43, after the two days he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Remember Jesus was avoiding publicity for a while. He left Judea when the Pharisees found out he was baptizing more people than John. He goes back to his hometown. The prophet is without honor there. So far, so good. Then verse 45 it says, So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. That's funny, isn't it? A prophet is without honor in his hometown, so the Galileans welcomed him. How does that work? Why did they welcome him? Because of what they had seen in Jerusalem at the feast. And back in chapter 2, verse 23, we see that he was doing signs in Jerusalem. And many people believed in him there because of the signs, but verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew what they were like, and he knew that their sign-based faith was not real saving faith. And so when he went back to Galilee, he was welcomed, not as a prophet who brought the word of God, but as a miracle worker. If he's welcome as a prophet like with the Samaritans, he's okay with that because he speaks God's word and sure they soon realize he's more than a prophet. When people welcome him just because he's a miracle worker, well, she doesn't want to be a performer of tricks. The signs in and of themselves don't produce real faith. Now there's nothing wrong with the signs. John records them for us here. They should produce faith. It's just that the human heart is sinful. And the sinfulness of our human heart means that they don't produce faith by themselves. Uh, just this week I taught a Bible overview class on Exodus and we were looking at the generation that came out of, of Egypt in the Old Testament. And you remember that? They saw signs and wonders God did to the Egyptians. 
Led out of captivity by a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. When they came to the Red Sea, the waters parted, led them through and closed up over the Egyptian armies. They saw the cloud on Mount Sinai, they heard God's voice. They had every privilege you can, privilege you can imagine in the signs and wonders department. But their bodies were strewn across the desert. And God brought them to judgment because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith. You can have every sign, but unless the Spirit is working in your heart, you don't really believe. You can have a faith, but it's just a faith for signs, rather than a saving faith in Jesus. That's what it was like in Jerusalem. And that's what it was like for the Galileans. On the other hand, look at the Samaritans. They came out to meet Jesus when the woman told them about him. They begged him to stay with them. He spoke God's word to them. And even though there were no great signs and wonders there, they believed that he was the Savior of the world. So Jesus was welcomed back in Galilee, not as a prophet who brought the word of God, but as a miracle worker. Jesus had come to reveal the Father, problem is people just wanted to see the signs. Jesus is the Son of God who can give eternal life, but people are more interested in his miracles. They're looking to see what's the next miracle going to be. Especially when he went back to Cana. Because you remember Cana is where, verse 46, he had made the water into wine. News had probably leaked out in the village by now, I'm not sure that, but doesn't take very long before there's another request for a miracle. And here's what happens in the middle of verse 46. Now at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Capernaum is by the Sea of Galilee. It's about 27 kilometers east of Canaan. And the word for official there is royal official. He's probably working for King Herod. And news about Jesus gets back to this man was living in Capernaum. And he makes a trip to go and see Jesus. So in verse 47, when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. You can understand this man? Of course you can understand. He's desperate for his son to be healed. His, his son is dying, and Jesus has got a reputation for healing. And so Jesus says to him, verse 48, Unless you see signs and wonders... You will not believe. Now you have to note that the word you there is in the plural. He's not just talking about this man. He's talking about Galileans as a whole. He's lamenting that unlike the Samaritans, these guys won't believe unless they see the signs and wonders. But this official, he's not there to try and test Jesus. He's not trying to make him do tricks. He's just... Desperate for his son. And so verse 49, he says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus is compassionate. He knows the man. He cares. And verse 50, he says to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He hadn't yet seen the sign, but he believed the word of Jesus for the sign. And he went on his way. And then look what happened. Verse 51. As he was going, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. 
So he asked them the hour when he began to get better and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's one o'clock, the fever left him. Then then the father knew it was the hour that Jesus said to him, your son will live. Jesus had really healed the boy. It's a sign here that shows Jesus can, can bring life from the clutches of death. He simply says, go, your son will live. And he does. It shows that Jesus' word is so powerful, he doesn't have to be there. He speaks, and it happens. It's like God spoke at the creation, and it happened. Now notice what it says about the royal official. The end of 53. And he himself believed, and all his household. He saw the sign, and he and his family actually believed in Jesus. Didn't he believe before? Yes. He believed for a miracle. Because Jesus promised it. To believe for a miracle when Jesus promises it, that is faith. To believe for a miracle when Jesus doesn't promise it, that's presumption, isn't it? But to believe for a miracle when Jesus promises it, that is faith. But it's not yet saving faith. The royal official believed that Jesus could heal his son. That's it. But now he actually believed in Jesus. The sign did what it was meant to do. It did have efficacy in his life. The sign resulted in real faith. And he believed him and his household and he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And John ends this passage with the words of verse 54. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Many signs in Jerusalem that just mentioned in general. But twice we see Jesus make that trip from Judea to Galilee. Twice he does a sign when he gets there. Twice John writes it down for us. First one, back in chapter 2, was turning of water to wine. The second one here is the healing of the fishes. Now think with me. Why do you think the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, is giving us these accounts? Remember what is the purpose of this book. Go to chapter 20, keep your finger in chapter 4. Go down to chapter 20. As we keep on coming back to this. Chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Page 1093. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life is his name. Why does John record these signs? So that we might believe. And by believing, we might have life. Believe that he is the Son of God. In the past few weeks, we've seen various things about Jesus being the Son of God. We've seen that he's the temple. We've seen that he's the prophet. We've seen that he's the Messiah. We've seen that he's the fount of living water. We've seen that he's the Word made flesh. We've seen that he is Yahweh God himself. We've seen today that he's the Savior of the world. And now we've seen something else as well. We've seen something about what it means to believe. 
Think about the Samaritans. There were two steps to their coming to faith in Christ. First of all, they heard from the woman. They believed her. But then they heard from Jesus himself. And many more believed because of his word. But these guys, no miracles, no signs, they didn't need it. All they needed was hearing the word. And they said, it's no longer because of what you said. We've heard for ourselves, we've seen for ourselves. He's the saviour of the world. And for many of us it's a two-step process as well, isn't it? We believe because of what our friends say. We believe because of what our parents teach us. We believe because we hear from other people. That is not wrong, it's a good first step. But we need to meet Jesus for ourselves. We need to meet him in his word, in the Bible. We need to know that he's the one who saves us. Not just because of what our friend or mother or relative says, but because we have met him and heard his voice. And when we meet Jesus and hear for ourselves what he has to say, and we know for ourselves that he's the Savior of the world. And then think about the royal official who believed Jesus when he promised that his son would be healed, but when he saw the sign, he truly believed. He and all his household. It's a bit like that with some people as well. You can believe all kinds of true things about Jesus. You can even trust him for some things in your life, but you still don't have saving faith. Not believing in him as the son of God. You're not trusting him to save you through his death in your place. Something needs to happen before you appropriate his, his, who he is and what he has done for yourself. And with this official, that was the sign. He saw it and he believed. What do you need? Well, if you're like the Galileans and need a sign, then rejoice. Because this part of John's Gospel is a book of signs. And John records numbers of signs for us. Enough to bring us to faith so that we have no excuse. Because we have the signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Finally, let me go back to talking about the harvest. Remember how the official harvest would come after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost? You see the first fruits of the harvest there? Well, some people see in this passage a foreshadowing of that time in Acts when the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Because here we see a movement from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Galilee, which you could argue is a Gentile type area. But whether or not that's the case, the fact is that even before the big harvest, the fields were white, people were ready, and Jesus began to harvest beforehand. And friends, you and I, we have no excuse not to be harvesting. Because the fields are even riper. Now is the official harvest time. The gospel is going out to all the nations. This is the time to tell people the gospel and bring them to meet Jesus. Please make that your priority. 
Make that your passion. You know what I'm going to do after this? I'm going to try and get a supply of these little Gospels. Try and keep it with me. Wherever I get the chance, I'm going to tell people how great Jesus is and invite them to read for themselves in his work. You can ask me next week how I'm going with it. Maybe I can ask you. Why don't you try to do that as well? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the harvest is ready. We thank you that we live in this age where um, the fields are so wide for harvest. There's so much work to be done. And that you have placed us as your fellow workers in that harvest field. We pray that it would be our passion to do your will that would really be what motivates us and drives us to see you honoured and glorified as your gospel is known. And to see you honoured and glorified as we ourselves have changed into your likeness more and more. Please, Father, would you work in our hearts by your Spirit so that that we see Jesus more and more clearly that we appreciate more and more who he is and what he's done, and are motivated more and more with a passion to see people wanting him and to honour him by becoming more like him. Please, Father, would you would you motivate us by your gospel? Our Father, we, we thank you that you have given us in your word all that we need to come to faith in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in your word we have the gospel. In your word we have the signs that the Lord Jesus has done to show indeed who he is. But we know that even that Without the work of your spirit in our hearts, we will, we will still not believe. And so we thank you so much that you have given us new birth by your spirit. That your spirit has opened our hearts to the Lord Jesus. And that we can love him and believe on him. And we pray for anyone here, Lord, who hasn't yet put their faith in Jesus. Or whose faith in Jesus is not yet a saving faith, it's just a, a faith for, for something else, something temporal. We pray that your Spirit will so work in their hearts that they may appropriate for themselves who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And might come to a saving trust in him. So, Father, we commit these things to you. Please, Father, would you work among us? Please, Father, would you change us to the glory of your name? We ask for Jesus' sake.